0: Ephesians chapter 4, turn there and put an eye on a singular verse this morning, verse 11. We're going, to, we're going to look further today at walking with Christ in variety. And by that, we namely and specifically mean the variety of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. And we're going to be focused on Ephesians 4:11. So have your journals ready, your Bible, a pen, Um, I want to remind you, this is actually part two of a message that I began back on August 1st. There we began to look at verses 7 to 11. We covered a good portion of those, and we saw that what Paul was unpacking, really, were two things. He was unpacking for us when it comes to spiritual gifts, the foundation for them, and an example of their variety. And on that first message, on August 1st, I just simply unpacked, really, more about the foundation for the variety of the gifts, which is the authority of Christ. We clearly saw that in the bulk of this set of four verses. Today, we're gonna to unpack more about the examples of this variety. Now, I wanna say this at the outset. If you look at the larger context, which is seven through 16, you're gonna find, and I'm saying this on purpose because I want you to hold on to this thought, you're gonna find that really the examples, of the variety is a very small portion. The greater portion's about the authority of Christ and then what all these gifts lead to. It's their purpose. We covered that uh, foundation in part one. We're gonna spend two more weeks on verses 12 through 16 coming up. We're just gonna look at verse 11, which is just the examples. And I say that because I don't want the examples of the gifts to override really what's the bulk of the text. And sometimes in the American church culture we do. We let just a few lines about examples of the gifts become our focus and we miss really the majority of the text being who has the right to give them and the purpose of them. So I'm gonna spend some time talking about these gifts but I don't want that to occupy your attention in the larger scope. I think you'll kind of catch my drift as we unpack this today. Now, our journey today through the examples of this variety will include three stops. There is a perspective stop. It will be very content heavy. You'll probably feel like you're in class for a bit. I want to ask you to hang with me. Have your pen, your your journals with you. Take good notes. It's where I'll share some biblical perspective as well as some preferential perspective. You'll probably find that you disagree with some of my thoughts in this perspective stop. That's perfectly fine. Um, our final stop will be a principle stop in which we'll take all of perhaps the differing perspectives that we can legitimately have, but we'll point them towards the principle that we all must stand on. Between those two stops, we're going to take a pit stop and I'll take some live q and A. I I want to encourage you to get your phones out. You can text in your questions Uh, I'll probably make the mic live as well during the service if you want to ask it just live uh, because the Q&A will be here before you know it, and you'll probably be so busy in the content section, you'll probably be absorbing, absorbing, or maybe drowning, uh, that maybe what you'll end up doing is you'll forget to text them in. So I'm giving you a heads up. The number's behind me on the screen. It's on your Worship Good Bulletin. We will take some questions live today. Um, but that's our; those are our three stops. And my aim is that when we're done, we won't be so focused on the actual examples, though that's part of this, but the purpose for which they are given. So, what do you say we begin our journey? Can we? Let's read together. Ephesians four eleven is just a singular verse this morning. It's in the larger context. I'll trust you to hear the hear part one. Know that uh, we're in a larger context. But here is. The singular verse in which Paul gives examples of variety. Will you read it out loud with me together, church? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now that continues on into verse 12, but for today's purposes, this is the examples of the variety of spiritual gifts within the church. And I would say to you, And if you were to look at this verse, there's probably a, what I'm going to call a ladder of perspective. Just kind of keep that illustration in mind. And what we'll do is we'll start at the top of the ladder with what we can at least say for sure. I want every ear listening. So I don't want to be misinterpreted unnecessarily. All right. We'll start at the top of the ladder with what we can say for sure. And we're going to kind of descend the ladder. We're gonna kind of climb on the ladder and our assurance and certainty will also descend as we move beyond what we can say for sure to what we could possibly suggest. Are you with me? Just nod, say "I'm, I'm tracking, I get the illustration, great. So let's start at the top of the ladder. What can we say for sure about this verse? That all of us would say, that's true. That's the top of the ladder. We can say this for sure. It's this right here, that these are examples of gifts that operated in the first century church. This is the beginning of, of a perspective that I wanna lay before you regarding this verse and the gifts within it. Don't go beyond this perspective yet. Can you just stay with me the top ring? Is that okay? The tops of the ladder? We can say this for sure, that these are examples of gifts that operate in the first century church. Now, I, I base that on two things. I based it on two words in the text and a correlation with other texts. Briefly, let me kind of lay this out for you. Again, it's gonna be content heavy for a while, but I think you'll like this. So just gonna kind of hang with me. One of the words in this is the word gifts. It's mentioned multiple times in this context. It's hard to escape this textual reality. These are gifts that Christ authoritatively gave to the church. That's just what it says, right? So, if you're in the church at Ephesus, you understand that God gave these gifts to the church for its founding. The second word that I use to base this first perspective on this top rung of the ladder is a word that's not in the ESV, but it's in most other translations. It's the word "sum." In fact, if you have this in your translation, you'll see it and you'll say, oh yeah, it's not in the ESV. And on this point, I would say, this is probably a foul ball for the ESV translators. Because this word sum is literally, clearly and plainly in the historical Greek text of the New Testament. In fact, it's not just in there as a word, it's actually with the definite article. And so grammatically, when you have the word sum with the definite article, the construction means that the sense you're giving to the text is something like this. Yes, he gave on one hand, the apostles. On the other hand, he gave the prophets. In another case, he gave the evangelist. And so it's very proper to use the word some to, watch this, summarize what's going on in the verse. So the words actually in the original language and he's just simply saying, yes, he gave some prophets, he gave some evangelists, some apostles. So those two words that Christ gave some gifts, on the one hand, these, on the other hand, these, in this case, those, tells me This is just an example of gifts he gave and that operated in the first century church. I also base that on a correlation that this list really matches in its intent, the other list of spiritual gifts, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. In fact, I I jotted down something from my notes I want you to read and say just in your heart and follow this along because I think this is probably a, a foundational reason for my perspective on these gifts, that I don't see any reason not to continue seeing these gifts, this list, in the same way that we do the other list in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. They are simply an example of the variety of spiritual gifts within the church. You see, what Paul is being is very consistent, not inconsistent. So whether it was Rome, Corinth or Ephesus or any city that received this circular letter, Paul is teaching about the Holy Spirit's supernatural enablements, and he's being consistent with every city and with every church. He's saying, guys, here's an example of how the Holy Spirit gifts his church. In Rome, it was a certain list because perhaps that's what they needed, that's what they were experiencing, the same thing in Corinth and now in Ephesus. So the lists are all different, but they're consistent in that it's Paul just giving examples of supernatural enablements for the common good. I don't think it's best to segment this list in Ephesians 4 into a separate category from the other lists in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. I think this actually prompts more holes than actually solving problems. If we just allow this list to be what it is, it is another list of spiritual gifts where Paul highlights examples of them, then what we see really is a consistency of teaching and thought. That, here, here's watch this again, that these were or are just examples of gifts that operate in the first century church. We can say that that's the top of the ladder for sure. Now, because that's my perspective, I I think these are also gifts that have continued to operate in succeeding centuries. I'm down a rung now. Are you with me? I'm saying this with some confidence, a level of assurance, but I also admit to you, there is disagreement here. And so I'm not gonna push this as mandatory, but I do think because the lists are consistent, and in each of these lists, these are gifts that operate then and now, I think this list is the same. So I would say to you, my perspective continues by saying this. Yes, here's what we can at least for sure say. They operated in the first century, church. But I also think to be consistent with the scriptures that these continue to operate in succeeding centuries, meaning 2021, the one you're living in. Now, church, listen to this. That's great news. That should not scare you. You know why? Because spiritual gifts are the way God manifests his power and presence among us. So, man, this should excite us. That God is gifting his church with whatever it needs to continue being his distinct people. Amen. Now... I understand that not everyone is with this perspective, maybe perhaps in this church, most of you are, I don't know, I've not polled you to see, but I know that in the Christian world, this is a, a uh, I wouldn't say a sharp divide, but it's a clear line for people. Either you believe the gifts have continued and are operating or you don't. Um, I, have, I think it, there's some heavy evidence for my perspective, for this perspective. I'm not gonna lay it out to you in this message. I would just say that if if you're curious about that, I would pick up any book on spiritual gifts by Sam Storms. I have a copy of his most recent one. It's a compilation of a lot of his writings. I've spoken with Sam uh, by God's grace, had a chance to meet him, went to his church, um, and just had a tremendous conversation with him on this topic, saw how they pursue and implement some of these things. It's very instructive for me. I've got the book with me. you can't have it, but you can glance at it if you want to know what the cover looks like and how to order it. But Sam Storms is I, in my opinion the best current author on the topic of spiritual gifts apart from the New Testament. So I'd encourage you, if you're curious about my perspective, even the top rung and succeeding rungs, pick up anything by Sam Storms on spiritual gifts. You will be spiritually benefited. Now, as we keep thinking about perspective, will you climb down the ladder with me a little more? Here's some things that I think I can suggest. I wouldn't say these for sure, I'm having even less confidence about some other things, but I think they are taught in this passage. I'm there, but man, I wouldn't push them on you. Here's my perspective on a few others. They come in the form of questions. Are there four gifts in this verse or five? Because you'll notice there are five actual nouns. Do you see that? But yet there's only four definite articles introducing these five nouns. Do you see that in the verse? The prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So I lean towards four gifts. And the last two are simply ways that the gift is expressed. I'll say more in a minute when I walk you through the gifts. I think there's four gifts, not five. Now I going to talk more about this on the podcast Tuesday. There's several... People and groups that believe that these five also represent something else. I'll address that on the podcast Tuesdays. So just be aware of that kind of a teaser to get you to listen in. Um, but I think he's wrestling four gifts, not five, because of the grammatical construction. Another suggestion: were the gifts the men? Some believe when he says he gave gifts to men, and then he lists these four or five. They would even call them offices that perhaps the gifts are actually the men he gave to the church. I don't buy that for this reason. Men weren't the only prophets in the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 11 lays out for us that women can prophesy and men can prophesy both if done in a certain way. And we know that Philip had seven daughters who prophesied. So my leaning again here was gonna be that he actually gave these as gifts and then watch this, they probably did in some way at some time formalize these gifts into roles. And that's the third further suggestion I'd make to you. Are these offices that are listed? I think probably so to some degree, but I think the formal aspect came out of the functional aspect. Again, it's content heavy. I'm driving home some, uh, some classroom instruction, just hear me, okay, and follow with me. I think the gift was first evident and functional. And then perhaps in time, they begin to see, oh, this function maybe deserves or or, uh, warrants uh, some type of official role or maybe even an office. So yes, I do think there are some official aspects to them, but I don't think that was the first way they were seen. Again, that's just what I would suggest. You hear me humbly? I'm sure you are. Lastly, I would say this. Does that mean that some of these gifts then, some of their formal and official aspects ceased? Probably so. Now, here's what I did not say. I did not say I think the gifts ceased. But I do think that probably certain aspects of the gifts, at least in this list, ceased. If it's true that some of them became official roles, like for instance, the apostle. I'll share more in a moment. It does seem that there was kind of an official apostle, and then it seemed like there were some unofficial. We may call them informal apostles. So I think the formal official apostles have ceased. There's no capital A apostles. There were just 12 or 13, depending on who you count, right? Those have ceased, but are there people who are still sent? Are there emissaries? Are there those who, on behalf of the church, are that they go to places with the authority? to establish churches. I think there are. I'll explain that just in a few moments. Just understand, again, these are just some some things about the perspective that I have based on this verse. And it begins at the top rung with something I think we can all agree on. These are examples of gifts that operated in the first century church, right? You'd probably agree with that. And then below that are just different rungs of ladder of which I'd bring um, different levels of confidence. So I'm hoping right now you're even thinking about your own perspective. Like, well, Todd, I agree with you down to level three. And after that, I'm I'm sure I'm with you. No problem. We'll have a Diet Coke, chat, and be fast friends. Amen? That's true for you and the person beside you or the person in your family. This is not an area for you to divide over. This is not something for you to fight over. It's just something to think about. And I would encourage you to develop a perspective that's rooted in scripture and that's consistent. That's what I feel like I've done. Maybe not. We'll know one day, right? But as your pastor, I wanna bring to you this perspective with the humility to say, here's what I know we can say for sure. Here's the least we can say. And then beyond that, I would suggest some things. So I hope you've written all that down content heavy, kind of factual in a lot of ways, but I think it will help you as you begin to think more about spiritual gifts and the variety within them. Now, before we take questions, I just wanna run through with you these four gifts. Can I do that with you? Just by definition, kind of give you some examples. I was gonna walk you through what these are. I think it'll, it'll prove to be consistent with how I, with my perspective as well. First of all, he mentions the apostles. again. A little bit repetitive here for me to say this, but the word just simply means sent one. I think there were foundational apostles, those 12 or 13, that seemed to be representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, by the way, which may be why they were so quick to find another one after the suicide of Judas. So they had to get to 12, but then you find that after Matthias is in there, Paul then says he's the... Um, last of the apostles. So were there 13 or were there 12? I'll let you argue that on your own around dinner That's your call. Um, but there was this official kind of, we call them big A apostles. They're no longer with us. There were qualifications for that. You had to have seen the resurrected Christ who's one of them. And so I think that role or that aspect of the gift has ceased. But I do think there is a functional aspect, what we call the little A apostles, those who are sent. And I believe there's a couple of scriptural references to this. One of them is the list in 1 Corinthians 12 where we see the word apostleship. And then in 2 Corinthians 8 where the Bible says that other churches had messengers. And the word messengers there is just the word apostles. So I think it's biblical to say there were informal or little a sent ones who did not... Qualify as a capital A apostle, but were nonetheless sent and in an authoritative way to other churches. So that's what's meant by apostle. It's an ascent one. Uh, The word prophets here is this other noun that's used. Uh, The word, uh, the gift of prophecy, of course, is that gift of speaking proclamational or predictive words that comfort, edify, and strengthen. This is what a prophet would do. He would Walk in the gift of prophecy. Now, if you're curious about this gift, just read 1 Corinthians 14. It's the preeminent chapter on prophecy in the New Testament. It'll help you a ton and you'll begin to see this is the most mentioned gift in the New Testament. In fact, if you were just to be a, on a deserted island and have the book from Acts to Revelation, just read it straight through at one sitting, you'd be shocked how often you'd run across the gift of prophecy or the idea of prophets in the church. So just keep that in mind. They were recognized, they were known to the church. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, you'll see this clearly. The spirit of the prophets is subject to other prophets and the prophets were to have their prophecies weighed by the elders. So I I can't go into a lot of detail here, just know that this is actually a gift that can sometimes be predictive. More often than not, it's just proclamational. And it's Holy Spirit, usually kind of a spontaneous word that then is shared either with the church or an individual, and it always strengthens, comforts, and edifies. We then have this idea of an evangelist. Incidentally, I see the evangelist as probably the most controversial one in all the list. Did you know that? We don't think about it that way in our culture, but I think it's the one that's the hardest to figure out because this is the only time it's mentioned It's in noun form, and so the other two times we see it mentioned in the New Testament, it's also in the same noun form. Uh, Philip was known as the evangelist in the first church, Acts 21, and then Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. So, was it strictly a role or office? I'll maintain that it probably was first a functional gift. Someone who just was extremely anointed in proclaiming the good news, and that people just seemed to uh, more readily respond. Again, I can't explain it. Uh, In our current culture, I can see Greg Laurie operating this way, Uh, Billy Graham, Uh, other people who just, when they share the gospel, you're like, man, I could say the same thing and folks would just stare at me. When they share it, they just flood. (laughs) So I tend to think it's a gift and then the church recognizes it and says, wow. And so they call them an evangelist. For instance, this same principle holds true with other gifts. How many of you would believe and know that you're all called to encourage one another you should say amen to that every hand up. The Bible clearly says we're to encourage one another. But did you know there's also a gift of exhortation or encouragement where sometimes that person who's obeying that command is spontaneously or regularly just anointed and gifted where his encouragement or her encouragement just kind of goes the extra mile. So don't think that a command excludes it from being a gift. They actually can both exist in my perspective, all right? So there's an evangelist, just a a good news proclaimer. And then he mentions lastly, this one gift, I would call it a pastoral gift. If it is two gifts, we would admit this, there's a lot of overlap, wouldn't you agree? Because shepherds also teach. You may not always shepherd if you're teaching, but usually you do. And so there's just this really, this incredible intersection between shepherding and teaching The two words literally mean pastoral instruction. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament we find the word shepherd in the noun form. The only time. The other times we see it's always in the verb when Paul or Peter's describing what the elders do. They shepherd the flock. They shepherd the people. So when you start seeing it in this verb form, you also notice that in these same passages, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, that these shepherds, the way they shepherd is by Teaching, Or as Acts 20 says, Paul said, I've taught you the whole counsel of God. Peter said, you feed the flock of God. And so you just really find this this merging that, wow, it'd be hard to shepherd if you didn't teach. And if you're teaching, you're probably shepherding. Does that make sense? So for that reason, and because of the one definite article, I see this as one gift, uh, the gift of, of pastorally instructing and guiding people. So that's just kind of a quick summary of the actual gifts. If you'd like to know more about these gifts as far as definitions, as well as the other ones, our church does have a a gift description list. Um, I'm not sure if it's on our website, but I know we have one. The elders signed off on it several years ago. I have a copy with me. You can see that or just simply use your uh, feedback card. Say, hey, send me the list. I'll get it to you. Um, But that's just some understanding about what the gifts are that for sure operated in the first century church and possibly are operating in today's church either as four or five and sometimes officially probably not in some ways. So you see how I'm just kind of lessening my confidence here? That's some perspective. That's the first stop. It's a lot to take in there. Um, some of you need to come up for air now a little bit and kind of take a breath. While you're doing that, let's see if any questions were texted in or if you want to ask one live Jake, would you mind grabbing that white mic and being our runner in case there's a brave soul who's willing to ask one live? So anything get texted in, I'm looking for us. We have one question, we'll take this. Is Judas considered an apostle? Hmm, I'm gonna tell you what I think and then I'm gonna defer to Ed Gregory for the right answer. Uh, Ed's one of our elders, way smarter than me. Uh, So if you're like, uh, Todd's wrong, just see Ed afterwards, he'll help you out. I would say he was considered a disciple, but not an apostle. Uh, It seemed like the disciples became apostles after the resurrection and were important to the founding of the church. That's my answer. I'm going to see if I get anything close from Ed's nod or shake. Okay, he's not doing anything, but he said I'm close. Great. (laughs) Not to put you on the spot, Ed, but that's what elders do. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay, good question. I'd say no, probably disciple only. And then those became apostles. Uh, is there another question takes it in that was the only one would anyone want to ask one live in a humble gracious way and I'll see if I can provide some additional insight to what you've heard if not no problem I just want to give you the opportunity anyone with that kind of courage it took like three minutes in the first service for somebody to actually raise their hand and ask a question but then it got pretty good so we see one back here so we'll take the mic back there is that surrender great Why do want you to go ahead and ask your question Hi. I'm not sure if this is really a question, but maybe more of a um, personal view from the text. Um, But to me, it seems like maybe the gifts were more than just their individual gifts, but the people themselves were the gifts as well. That the gift itself overall was the collection and the unity of people. Okay. So we are just taking questions, but I appreciate the statement. And uh, I would say that probably aligns with the view that some believe that the gifts were actually the men. So it's a, it's a legitimate uh, option. I don't lean there, but I'm glad you felt free to share that. Thanks, Serena. Uh, any questions you may have that anyone wants to ask? Okay, is that, is that Tammy? I... Yeah, go ahead, Tammy. Ask your question. Can, can you have gifts kind of come and go? So like, can you have a time where he's kind of gifted you with these characteristics to be a certain way. And then maybe you kind of step back from that. Yes, Can they so, kind of come and go like that? So I'm going to speak to the actual functional gifts, which all of them are functional, I think. And I'm not speaking as far as when they maybe formalized it, but I do think that's how gifts operate. They're given sovereignly, By the Holy Spirit. Now, for those who operate regularly, let's say within a role that is also perhaps accompanied by a gift. um, The prayer would be that the Holy Spirit would anoint and really kind of give unction in that moment to that role and that gift. But I don't know that that always happens. I'm confident there have been times I've preached without the power of the Holy Spirit. I've pastored in moments where I haven't pastored well. That's not on the spirit, that's on my flesh. Um, So generally speaking, gifts are just given sovereignly by the Holy Spirit in the need of the moment as he sees best to meet the needs and to build up the church. So I would say generally speaking, yes, they they are, they can come and go. I'm not sure the phrasing is the best way to describe it, but I do think I'd get the heartbeat of the question. So I would say yes. Uh, gifts, and this is my perspective. I don't think you carry around your gift in a bag and just use it when you want to. And that's sometimes the way the American church sees it. Like, oh, I took the spiritual gift test. I know my gift, so now I'll just use it when I want to. That's not the way the Bible describes spiritual gifts. The Bible describes them as gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And maybe he does give you one for good, but he empowers you to use it in a way that's supernatural. In other words, God's presence and power is seen and known when the gift is in play. So for that reason, I tend to think what you described is probably the way many of them are seen. Maybe you have it for good and it's just displayed intermittently. Again, these are suggestions and perspectives that I just, we need to think about them and be willing to kind of engage in conversation. Let's take one more question if you have one and I'll see if I can embarrass myself some more here. We have two, we'll just take these two then and that'll be our final two. We'll start with the one in the front and then we'll go back there. Is that Cindy? Okay, we'll take one well, in front of you first and then you're Cindy. I was wondering, what would the other perspective be about that possible fifth gift? What makes it different? What separates a pastor from a teacher? Okay, that's Rhonda. I couldn't quite recognize you at first. Good. Um, if you see these as five, probably the separation is gonna be that one would primarily teach And one would just primarily uh, kinda use the word care for. So a shepherd may walk with you and care for you and a teacher would be more of an instructor. I don't like that division because some of the best folks who care for you are the ones who instruct you. But because it seemed a little more didactic. In fact, the word instructor here is from where we get our word didactic, by the way. Sometimes those who just kind of impart knowledge and tell you what's going on, what it means, you can kinda see them as like distant and like, well, that's just the facts. But actually, they care enough to tell you the truth. But if there, was, if there were five, I would say that would be the distinction. Does that help? Great. Cindy, what's your question? You mentioned functional and then moving into an office, or it was made an office. Who, who made it into an office? Where do we see that transition? Is it in the New Testament? Where, yeah. yeah, it would be the New Testament, and that's probably something more implied. You know, Paul does lay out the qualifications for an apostle, um, beyond that role, that there seems to be clear qualifications. By the way, there were false apostles in the New Testament and there, were, there, there was this sense that there were some super apostles. Just kind of describes again, the celebrity culture of the first church. We're no different, I mean, just be honest. There's nothing new under the sun. We're battling the same disease they did. I won't stop there, I want to, but I won't. Um, so beyond that one, Cindy, I think it probably was each church trying to figure out with good intentions What do we do to help the church operate and move effectively on mission for God? So I don't think formalizing some aspects was a bad thing. Paul even seemed to admit this when he said, if a man desires the office of bishop or elder or pastor, he desires a good thing and he lays out qualifications, maybe he's saying, hey, if there are certain men in your church exemplifying these gifts, man, use them regularly and and officially to help the church as a whole. So perhaps it just kind of maybe unfolded that way. Does that help answer the question? I don't know that we, apart from elder and deacon, which I think are established offices in the church, uh, I don't know that we have a mandate to, to label other gifts and say, okay, that's now an official rule. If it helps our church, perhaps we're free to, but I don't think we're bound to. Now on that, let me just say a word to you that I think you'll really appreciate, and then we gotta move on. Um, I mean, this is my, strictly my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for the elders here. Um, in areas where this is my suggestion, how I see things. I think it's very unfortunate. Maybe I shouldn't say very. I think it's somewhat unfortunate that the church at large is afraid of the word apostle and prophet. I do. I think it's another indication that we just let the culture lean in on us sometimes too heavily. And so you don't go to a church and you hardly ever see someone say, well, this is an apostle of first family because they'd like raise an eyebrow, turn their head and squint. Like, you're weird. And because where that is used, it's usually misused. Can we be that honest? It is. But technically, they existed in the early church, especially prophets. They were a known group. But we don't say, hey, this is a Prophet Derek. I'm not asking for a new title at all, okay? Trust me. I just think it's interesting how, how the church at large sometimes reads the Bible very plainly and then operates in ways that seem almost afraid just to embrace what it says. That's kind of weighs my heart sometimes. So I don't think we're under obligation to use those terms in that way. But I wonder what happened on the way to where we're so afraid to even say it. Just something to think about, okay? It seems like we're really good with evangelists. No one minds using that term, do we? He's an evangelist and we, we applaud. But if you said, oh, he's a prophet, they'd be like, It's like, you know what I'm saying? So I'm just kind of sharing with you frustrations I have. I don't have answers for them, but it just kind of all goes into this perspective. And I think as you read the Bible and as you hear teaching and as you listen to the Holy Spirit and develop your own perspective, just work to be consistent with the the whole of the Bible. I don't think any of us are perfectly consistent, but you got to land at the place where you're most consistent. I believe this perspective lands in that place. Now, let me land this plane of variety as we leave today on a principle we all have to agree on. Regardless of your differing perspective, here's the principle to which every perspective must point, And that is that the gifts were given, this list especially was given these examples, these gifts were given for the maturing of the body. That's a principle. You can't decide like, well I don't think I agree with that part, Todd. No. If you don't agree with that, we can still have Diet Coke, but we're gonna disagree vehemently probably. Like it's just clear. In fact, watch this. I told you at the beginning that the bulk of the text is about how these gifts mature the body. There's only one single verse that describes the examples of them. Paul's heartbeat. His real intention is to say, hey, in the variety of gifts, lean towards maturity. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And so the body grows up So church, just lodge this simple sentence in your brain this morning. As you look at this verse that describes the examples of the variety, know this, that as the verses around it show us, really the intent of God's variety is to decrease the body's immaturity. In fact, look with me at 12 through 16. We're going to teach on these for the next two weeks, so I'm not going to go into great detail, but notice how many phrases are aimed at maturity. Will you notice this with me? Verse 12, building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Look at the phrase, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says in verse 14, he doesn't want us to be children, meaning grow up church, quit being tossed about. He wants us and says in verse 15, to speak the truth in love so that we are growing up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. He says in verse 16, that when every joint is equipped and every part is working, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can't read 12 through 16 and think, hey, what are the gifts all about? It is so in your face and plain. The gifts are about maturing the church. And on that principle, we must stand. We must realize this is what we agree on. So if your perspective is different than mine and in a room this size, sure. I'm sure there's many that are. I actually may be wrong. Regardless of that, we must all board the train that says maturity is the destination. You see, I think sometimes we get on the caboose, which is the examples of variety. And we love to live in the caboose. And what I want to do is get you in the engine. Let's drive the train to the right destination. Let's put the right kind of coal into the engine. Let's, man, let's be aiming towards maturity. Now, notice what I said in this simple sentence, because I worded it this way on purpose. I want to kind of come at you this morning hard in this way. I did not say on purpose, I didn't say God's variety decreases, uh, God's variety of the gifts increases maturity. I didn't say that. You know why? Because here's how we hear that. We hear that like this Oh, yes, I'm mature and I'll just be more mature. But the problem is not everyone is mature. There's actually immaturity in the body. How do you know? Well, let's just take the Bible, 1 Corinthians, where the list is, 1 Corinthians 12. If you back that book up, you'll find that he talks about division, rivalry, myopic loyalty. Celebrityism, competition, complaining. That's not a level of maturity, that's visible immaturity. So, as I just pondered that and was under the weight of that myself, I just realized our church needs to hear something that the variety that God has designed actually decreases immaturity, and we need that. It does not need to be all about my gift or your gift. Your way or my way, it should be about Christ growing up into him. And yes, there are more visible gifts, there are less visible gifts, but there are no unimportant gifts. And the sooner we embrace that, man, God has designed the variety to work this way so that the whole body's cared for and is growing and is maturing, the more we appreciate the variety, the sooner and the quicker we'll begin to grow up into Christ. So church... I'm calling upon you in the same way I did in week one. Submit to the giver and serve with your gift. Those action points aren't changing in my perspective. This is what the church needs. Everyone in the game. With your unique gift and special way, the way God's wired and gifted you, we need you off the sidelines and in the game. Serving, encouraging, building up, edifying so that the church as a whole is growing up into Christ. Man, I'm praying that immaturity will decrease visibly and that maturity will increase noticeably. That competition will be a a far thought at first family. Instead, security and confidence in the Holy Spirit's gifting of us would just rise and that we would move and operate under his power, secured how he's gifted us for the exact moment where the need is. That's what I'm praying. That begins by just appreciating the design that God has made in the variety. It's one of the lanes on the freeway to maturity. So to help you cement this in your heart today, help you kind of take the perspective And the principle. And just make sure that they're fitting well. And that you're motivated towards maturity. That you're pointing your perspective to that end game. I want us to close by just reading another corollary passage about spiritual gifts and their variety. And yet their singular purpose. It's 1 Corinthians 12. And I'm going to ask if you would to stand with me. And in passionate unison. Will you read together this corollary passage. That again describes both of these elements. And can we together just ask the Lord to continue to give us a submissive spirit to his authority to give the gifts in a variety of ways as he pleases and then to use our gifts in the body towards the purpose of maturity. Church, read with me together, with you with passion and heart. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.